Uh, so I work for one of them. Um, often we'll also do sort of leg work for the tabloids and that they'd call up and, and sort of say, look, we need a door knocked on in your patch. Can you go and do it? So you end up doing sort of death knocks and, and sort of helping with kiss and tells and things like that. Um, it's certainly sort of the breeding ground where a lot of tabloid reporters cut their teeth. Um, I remember one job... Um, pretending to be a student when Princess Beatrice started Goldsmiths University and spending a week sort of, I managed to blag um, her timetable off a tutor by saying that I was on the same course as her and I'd lost mine. Um, and, uh, and I got her, um, her timetable and then basically just went to all of her classes, all of her seminars. She was studying sort of history of art and philosophy, and I'd done philosophy at university. I think that's why I was chosen because I, I sort of had a broad grasp of what may be being discussed, and, and sort of, and I even contributed to these seminars. You know, <laughs> I had my name somewhere on the register, not my real name, but I sort of, you know, I, and, and and I was feeding information to the Sun um, about what was going on. Um, it was a story about her. You know, not working very hard, turning up hungover. Um, that sort of the, the sort of normal things you do in your first week at university. To be fair, but it was certainly represented as a you know how dare she living in grace and luxury and can't even be bothered to attend the seminars on time and, and write anything. And you know, I, I suppose it's one of those things that at the time you think it was great tabloid fun, and I say you didn't feel anything. Uh, have any ill feeling about it. I thought it was great fun to sort of be undercover and having her protection officers um, sort of be knocking around and never take two glances at me. You know, they just accepted that I was a student and I, I thought I was some sort of uh, red-top James Bond, I suppose, uh, in, my, in my own little way. Um, anyway, after six months there, I, I um, went to the Daily Star. Um, the Daily Star... Um, I'm sure it's not top of, of, of many people in this room's reading list, um, but uh, it, it's, it, it sells um, about 600,000 copies a day at the moment. I think at a peak a couple of years ago, I think it was, it was selling about 850 copies. Uh, there was certainly, at times, was beginning to push a million. So, you know, it, 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 it's, um, it's not an insignificant thought. I mean, it sells more than most of the broadsheets put together. Uh, that said, it, it is probably um, one of the more disreputable of our tabloid papers, it would be fair to say. Um, and, you know, certainly with the things that I've been saying at Leveson, etc., you know, I do sort of try and contextualise and say this is the worst example of how things operate. Um, you know, standards um, are slightly higher on the tabloids most of the time. But certainly, um, not a great deal at other times. And there's certainly, you know, you work really closely with other tabloid hacks from, from other newspapers, and the sort of things that I got up to, they got up to too. The sort of invention of quotes, invention of stories. Um, I always remember um, being on a job with a, with a son hack, who, who's now very senior, as an executive there. I won't, will not name. Um, and we spent two days um, sitting outside a Somali asylum seeker's house. Um, he was living in a, in a 
in, 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 a, in a five million pound house. Well, we said it was five million pound, but I don't think we ever checked how much it was worth in Chelsea. And this is a great tabloid story because anyone living in a, anything other than a squalor who's an asylum seeker is, is basically taking the mick. It, it's viewed as um, it, so. Uh, we spent trying to get this this um, man or his family to, to give us a quote um, because a great quote would have been, "I don't care. I'll take take it for all it's worth." That's the perfect quote. But he will not leave the house because he had a pack of photographers and reporters waiting outside the door. So he literally was penned in his house and was getting people to deliver food and things like that to him. I don't think even if kids would go to school because we had him basically imprisoned in the house. And after two days um, of him not appearing, we were finally called off. And, and I went back to the, the office with my tail between my, my legs saying, you know, nothing. I haven't seen anything of him. And the paper the next day, the son had a big story with the asylum seeker saying, pretty much, I'll take it for all it's worth. I don't care. And I was, God, God, where's this come from? And I called her up and I was like, you've really landed me in this. You know that? Because I walked into the office and I got hauled over. How come the son had got a quote? I said, they've just made it up. Honestly, they did not. This man did not leave the house all day. I swear to you, I, it was not my aim to do me. And I was told, "You must be more canny. You must be more canny." And and that was quite early in my time at the Daily Star. Um, you must be more canny. And it was basically I took that as we we need a line. And who is he to complain? What is he going to do to complain about? Something like that. He's, he's an asylum seeker. He doesn't know. He's probably got bigger problems than contacts in the PCC. Um, yeah, and, and that was very much the the tone of things. Um, yeah, I, I used that example of the sort of the, the tone of, of what was going on. Um, anyway, after two years of being there, I've been unhappy for a while, um, particularly towards the, the coverage of Islam. Um, that was very much the, the whipping boy of the, of the, of the Daily Star and, and it became very much to blame for all social ills anything that was wrong with this country would tend to be targeted towards um, immigrants um, and Muslims and quite a few, a lot of these stories were so spurious and, and based on such scant dubious evidence to essentially be untrue or or just made up, um, and I became sort of convinced. I, I, I had a realization, I suppose, that, that had been nagging away for a while. That you know, what you write um, sort of has real-world, you know, has consequences, and this is really undermining a lot of good work people are doing to try and bring the communities together. Um, there came a run of stories in sort of February this year where. The Daily Star were were really sort of, um, as I saw, supporting or at least sort of flirting with the English Defence League. They're a sort of far right, not a political party. They're a far right sort of group who, whose sole agenda is to get the the Quran um, banned in Britain. That that is their only sort of aim. And the basis of this support was often sort of very. Um, 
distorted and sometimes made up stories to make the EDL appear quite sort of moderate and fighting against what was an extreme sort of Islam um, who was somehow trying to undermine our, our British culture. And, and, it, and it, it, yeah, it was day after day after day because this seemed to be resonating with the reader. We had a, we had a poll um, one particular day where 99% of readers came back saying they supported the English Defence League. And that was out of about 2,000 people. Um, that it, it, was, it was this incessant sort of um, pressure to come up with stories about the English Defence League. And it became this chicken and egg scenario. Are the readers supporting the English Defence League because they genuinely do? Or are we providing them with stories which present sort of English Defence League as the answer to the problem of Islam that they are just buying into that? And, and you know, I felt like I was really contributing to turning um, what may be otherwise moderate people um, to far-right sort of uh, ideologies. And, and, and I decided to quit. Um, and I could have just resigned. I certainly um, was encouraged to just resign. Um, but I, I, I decided that I was going to do something else. And I was going to resign um, publicly, or I was going to at least leak my resignation letter uh, to the Guardian. Um, and this was because I felt that <coughs> right to resign, it makes no difference because they just get someone to sit in my seat the next day and things carry on as normal. Um, I thought this was an issue that was so serious that um, it needed to get some wider coverage. Um, I kind of wanted to, to tackle their sensationalism uh, with some sensationalism of my own, I suppose. Um, and so I leaked this lengthy um, and <laughs> sort of vicious uh, time, I suppose, but I thought very fair. Um, letter to, to the Guardian, uh, and it was addressed to Richard Desmond, who's the proprietor of the company, a man who I'd never met, um, other than passing in the lift one day when his own personal lift had broken, you see, and uh, he shared it with, shared it with us. Um, but I, I felt that it's very difficult. I, it's very difficult. I didn't want to blame a particular layer of, of, of management um, for the pressures that were put on me, because I understand there's pressures on them. Um, to provide certain, you know, to, to provide certain content. I didn't think it was fair. I couldn't really, sort of, in my head, work out where I would, um, sort of, who I would send this letter to. And I decided, really, responsibility must rest at the very top um, with Richard Desmond. You know, it's his product, um, and he knows what's going out every day, and, and he's allowing it. So, I, so I addressed it. Also, I thought that's more likely to garner more publicity to this cause. Um, you know, to, to take it to the big man rather than, uh, you know, than, than any lower down the chain. So, so maybe some of the sensationalism I learned in the tabloids uh, I used against them in, in that instance. Um, since then, um, it's been sort of, uh, seven, eight, nine months, I suppose, now. I, I resigned beginning of March, so six months, seven months. Um, I've, I've sort of, I'm a freelance journalist. Um, I do some broadcasting stuff, I do some lecturing stuff. But certainly, I haven't done myself any favours, um, sort of uh, employment wise, um, with, many, with many newspaper groups, I wouldn't say all. Um, the Guardian and the Independent are still sort of you know, happy to take things off me. Um, 
but certainly the accusations which I've put out and the things that I've spoken of do apply beyond just the Northern and Shell Company. Um, you know, some have complained that I'm trying to tar all newspaper groups with the same brush as them, and I'm certainly not. But I, I certainly won't allow them to try and wriggle out of any sort of uh, recognition that this sort of behaviour also occurs in their newsroom too. Uh, I don't think that's fair, um, because this is, a, this is a cultural issue throughout the industry. Um, mainly the tabloid end, but not exclusively. Even in the broadsheets, um, there are issues with some of the things that, that, that I'll discuss in this paper, um, which maybe I should move along to. Um, and this is a paper that I that I presented um, a few weeks ago um, to an to a ethics conference, the Institute of Communication Ethics, would that be right? Um, and, and I'm sort of working it up in, into a chapter for a book. And I suppose it, it, it's sort of a, a little bit more of a step back take on, on where this um, tabloid culture comes from uh, and what the effects are. Are having and the mindset as a journal, as a tabloid journalist that, that you have to be in, and, and some of the fallacies you allow yourself to buy into to write some of the stuff um, which we do and it's certainly been quite difficult um, for me well I found it quite difficult the last couple of weeks seeing some of the evidence that some of the victims of press intrusion and, and sort of uh, mistruths and harassment coming forward and, and recounting how much this has impacted their lives. Um, you know, I never wrote about the McCanns, um, but certainly I, I found just the fact of working for an organisation that did print headlines such as uh, Maddie McCann's body stored in a freezer um, and her parents sold, hard up McCann's sold her, um, you know, it did make me certainly question my own uh, moral judgments to sort of allow myself to work in an institution like that. But certainly, it has provoked a slight existential crisis in myself. Um, you know, what exactly um, have I been doing for a living? You know, I don't think. Uh, have I been a journalist? Um, you know, what, what is it about my behaviour that, that's made me a journalist? Because I work for a newspaper. Um, if, if, you, if you, know, you look in the dictionary of what a, what a journalist is, you'll come back with, with something like someone who writes for a newspaper or journal. But I don't think that's much of a description, really. I mean, um, and maybe that is part of the problem. Um, it, yeah, I think I, I, I started trying to think about a, a fuller definition. What is journalism? Uh, and, and I came across um, this particular... Um, a definition that's provided by Brian Cathcart in, in an essay he did called Code Breakers, um, which I would advise anyone who hasn't read it to read, because it really is um, cracking. Um, he describes journalism thus. Um, journalism is demonstrably valuable to society. It tells us what is new, important, and interesting in public life. It holds authority to account. It promotes informed debate. It entertains, and it enlightens. Now, I, I think that, of all the definitions that I've read, I think they have the nail on the head of what journalism should be. But it's quite sobering, because it doesn't reflect in anything that I did as a journalist. Um, you know, sometimes what I wrote was new, 
Um, but very rarely, often it was cannibalised from other news sources, um, be it the news wires, a fairly legitimate way to sort of cannibalise, but often from other newspapers, um, second hand, um, and even if it was new, it was so um, tightly constrained within this sort of ideological framework. Um, that you weren't given the freedom to allow a new narrative on a story. You were always trying to fit the, the round piece into the square hull. Um, yeah, far from impo- uh, sort of, uh, encouraging informed debate, often what I was writing um, was reducing the issues down to very binary, reductive arguments um, that often... Um, you know, completely obscured what they were about. Um, it, I would feel that probably a reader of some of my stories would be more ignorant of the issue afterwards than probably when they began. <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, whether what I was doing was important and interesting in, in public life, it's a harder question to answer very subjective sort of terms um, it's the sort of public interest versus interest of the public um, argument um, but certainly the Daily Star uh, when you sort of think about um, whether it was uh, sorry their coverage of um, international issues for example you know, whether it was promoting what was interesting and necessary for as a society, we should know, they had no coverage of international issues at all. Um, very rarely they would, they would cover a story beyond the, the, the shores of Great Britain. And um, it was always done in a, in a very um, reductive and uh, mocking sort of sense when the, you had the Chile mine disaster, um, for example. Um, you know, that sort of made world news and the tabloids picked up on it because it had a great human interest hook on it um, but one of the front pages of the Daily Star was Chile mine to be turned into theme park you know, th- this was the sort of tone of which international issues were dealt with um, the only mention of Jordan that you would find um, <laughs> would, would be attached to a a pair of fake breasts um, rather than, than the country. Um, so, so yes, uh, you know, uh, I think that certainly Brian. Yes, sorry, she, she, so I, I, I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> I should explain. She's she's a, she's a model. Yes, she's a, she's a very famous glamour model. <laughs> Her name's Katie Price, but she's known as Jordan. Treasure. I just assume that everyone must know who Jordan is. <laughs> but you're a big fan. I know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I told you not to say that. <laughs> <laughs> You're a tabloid reporter. <laughs> so what, you know, if it wasn't journalism that I was doing, what was it? Um, and I think that, uh, that Jonathan Kaplan, who is the lead counsel for Associated Newspapers uh, at the Leveson Inquiry, <coughs> gave a very good pointer. He said in his opening statement that the aim of his papers, including the Daily Mail, um, the Mail on Sunday, the aim is to entertain, it is to engage. Um, The aim is to entertain. 
that's certainly a word that, that rings true to me. Um, everything that I wrote was designed to appeal to the to the emotional over the rational, um, the knee jerk over the considered, um, reinforcing assumptions rather than challenging them. Um, and it's all presented in this very easily digestible style that sort of revels in its own triviality. Um, going back to the dictionary, I flipped to S and I came to the word storytelling. And the word storytelling said an account of imaginary or real people and events told for entertainment. I've cracked it. I've been a storyteller. Um, journalism it, it is a form of storytelling. Um, but the obligation of journalism proper is an attempt at the truth. While a storyteller's only obligation is to entertain, to, to engage their audience, to keep them reading. Um, storytelling is not constrained by the same parameters um, that journalism is. Um, entertaining is not only about making people happy. Um, horror movies are made to provoke fear and anxiety in people. People are entertained by those emotions too. Uh, and certainly tabloids provide a steady flow of, of, of stories that provoke fear and anxiety. And I think this is, this is important, an important definition that just because something is, is printed in a newspaper, do we need to start questioning what exactly is it? Um, entertainment has always formed part of a newspaper's output, um, and so should it. Um, but to me, it's, it's got to be secondary to that, to that need to inform, almost as a, as a desirable byproduct rather than the primary motivation. Um, I think. In the past, we've had a, a situation where crudely news informed and comment um, entertained. Those two things have now been completely melded together, most noticeably in the tabloids, but, but not um, solely. Um, so you have this situation where comment is indistinguishable from news. Um, Alistair Campbell, today at Leveson, was, was saying this very thing. Um, Truth is indistinguishable from conjecture. Um, and I think this is, this is really having a devastating impact on, on the quality of our social dialogue. Um, millions of people every day um, read the likes of the Daily Star and the Sun um, and the Mail. And, and, and the fact that, it, that this need to entertain is now subservient, uh, sorry, this need to inform is subservient to the one to entertain. Um, really does cause issues. Um, the likes of Chris Jeffries, do, do people know who Chris Jeffries? Chris Jeffries is a man who, um, who was implicated in the murder um, of, a, of a, a woman called Joanne Yates um, in, in Bristol um, last year. Um, and he had the appearance, certainly, he was her landlord, and he looked a little bit weird. 
He was, an, he was a school teacher, a pillar of, society, of the society that had been arrested. He was in the neighbourhood watch scheme. He, he was very well known in the community, um, had retired. But he, he had a maybe slightly weird appearance about him, um, and, and maybe a slightly weird manner about him. And there was huge public interest in, in this story, as there tends to be um, when a, a, a young, white, pretty British female disappears. Um, that they're the qualities for a great tabloid story right there. Um, he, under, he, he was completely innocent, but in the day, in the, in the months before, he was um, sort of exonerated of being involved and the real killer of her was found. He, he was absolutely monstered, absolutely monstered by the press. He, he front pages such as Peeping Tom, um, accusing him of being sort of a, a weirdo, a loner, um, a pervert. Um, but he, he was really caught in the crosshairs of, of a press whose main aim was to entertain and not to inform. They found um, a character to insert into this um, storyline, as it was. Um, they have the the dame, the, the damsel who had been sort of slain and they needed the bad guy and he fitted what was a caricature um, in this instance you had a situation where it was not reality which was the reference point for the journalists involved but the hyper real um, and this is something that, that I'm going to discuss um, in the next five ten minutes. Is how this hyper real narrative um, has completely overtaken um, the debate in, in tablet and how tablets operate. They operate on, on a, in a sphere of the hyper real and not the real. Um, it is about caricaturing. It is about creating um, convenient narratives. Um, Chris Jeffries, um, his depiction in newspapers was not based on him. He said in an interview since, I did not recognise this person who was presented. I did not recognise them at all. What his character was based on was the, the, the evil murderers of Hollywood movies. That's what it had more akin to. And that was a purposeful um, editorial decision that he will make a good story and, and, and this is a real issue in, in the Daily Star's coverage of Islam if we didn't have the likes of Chris Jeffries um, Islam became the token bad guy who all ills could be blamed on um, to create this narrative of Britishness um, and Islam being incompatible that was the narrative it wasn't based in reality it was based in this hyper-real sphere um, it was there to, to provoke anxiety. It was not about... Um, it was an entertainment, a form of entertainment, but one that provoked anxiety and fear. Uh, and it informed a, a parallel cycle that occurs in, in tabloid newspapers. That assumption. Um, you know, it's a very agenda-rich enterprise. Um, and it's a very potent sort of narrative formula. You, you, you demonise the powerless and the disenfranchised. 
And you juxtapose that with this sort of aspirational materialism of celebrities and, and millionaire footballers and £500,000 cars in, in one sort of very easily digestible product you provide the illness and you provide the cure um, and that to me is what we have um, hidden under the auspices of, of, of a newspaper um, in certain publications um, George Monivot is a, um, a Guardian columnist, um, and he wrote a, a comment piece not long ago called Sucking Out Our Brain Through Our Eyes. Very, very sort of, uh, vivid title. Um, and this was about advertising. And it struck me that when I read it, it, is, um, it, it sort of really rung true um, to, to what my, the agenda of, of the Daily Star was. More than journalism, the agenda was more advertorial. I'll just read you out, read you out a section. Pervasiveness and repetition act like a battering ram against our minds. The first time we see an advertisement, we're likely to be aware of what it's telling us and what it's encouraging us to buy. From then on, we process it passively, absorbing its, its imagery and messages without consenting them, as we are no longer fully switched on. Brands and memes then become linked in ways our conscious mind fails to detect. The message used by advertisers designed to trigger emotional rather than rational responses. In a crowded advertising market, passive and implicit learning become the key drivers of emotional attachment. That, to me, sounded more like what I was involved in than journalism. And I suppose that this sort of link between the, the advertorial and the journalistic, um, it does have a commercial foundation, um, but it also has an ideological one. They're both attempts to sell a worldview. Um, and it's a worldview that's not founded on, on public interest, one that's founded on self interest, desire to sell your product. Newspapers are there to try and sell their products above all else. I said in, in um, the Leveson seminar I did that capitalism was founded on this self-interest fundamentally is trampling on journalism which is founded on public interest. They, they, are, they must go together um, in the current climate. Newspapers must be profitable but it's, it's such an uneasy fit. It's a very difficult fit to make um, and maintain the two properly. And, and I think the capitalist um, agenda is really um, overbearing on, on the journalistic one. Um, I think that, that another example of just how the tentacles of, of this process of spread is, is reality TV. Um, reality TV is, is a huge part of tabloid output. I don't know. I'm sure you're all aware of Big Brother and, and etc. The only way is Essex, perhaps. Uh, you know, it's sort of a reality TV show, but the characters in them—they're half fictional and they're half real. And, and it's not an accident that these programmes have exploded in the last ten years. They're the, on every night, different shows like this, because it's the 
perfect tabloid um, construct. Um, you have these people desperate for the opportunity to be caricatured, for the for this sort of uh, difference between the, the real them and the hyper real them that's represented in newspapers, on TV. They're happy for that line to be blurred. Um, and, and this is a cultural shift. No longer do we have to cajole people into entering into this Faustian pact with, with newspapers um, where they become caricatures of themselves. People are queuing up and desperate to do so. It's very easy um, content for newspapers and it fits their agenda perfectly to create storylines um, that don't necessarily bear any relation to truth but they entertain um, I suppose um, well sorry I'm, I'm skipping a bit here um, the cross media nature of this you can't sort of isolate newspapers on their own um, is vital in um, in this simulation simulacra building process um, because you have the force of repetition. You don't, you know, what's in newspapers is discussed on TV, on radio, on the internet, instantly. <coughs> the things that aren't necessarily true through mere force of repetition in many ways become true for all intents and purposes. It doesn't matter in reality if something has no truth. In the hyper-real, narrative of the tabloid world it can be true um, for more on that I, I, would, I, I would read um, Alistair Campbell's Evidence to Levison today um, he, he, he discusses it much more eloquently than me the, the sort of force that this um, the, the cross media nature has of, of just the repetition of things makes them um, appear true. Um, there's another effect um, of this hyper-real sort of narrative. Uh, it's not so much in the audience, but on the, um, uh, but on the journalists themselves. And this is less discussed. Um, I think journalists as a, as a group consider themselves as people who can sort of see through the matrix. They're not fooled by this. They can see what's going on. I certainly believe that. Um, but I think the arguments that, that, that they give, and the arguments that I used to give from many a bar stool in my time, betray um, the fact that they are buying into this hyper-real world. I used to say, well, celebrities, they're fair game. They make millions off of their image. You can't just turn it on and off like a tap. Um, but the assumption that that argument is based on is that the real and the hyper-real are one and the same. That the person who you see on TV is the same as a person in real life. Um, and certainly, that's not the case. Um, one is a, often a character and the other one is a real human being with emotions and feelings and rights. Um, 
the same as any other human. 